Okay. I like to begin uh, our evening, our retreat, and our evening together uh, with a poem. This is a poem by David White called Tillico Lake. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow the true shape of your own face. And so here we are beginning in this high Rocky Mountain place for our 10th annual month-long retreat, early spring retreat. And it really is uh, a great honor to be with each of you, an honor and a joy. And spending uh, the next month, or for some of you, two weeks, in a way that's really quite unique and quite special in our culture or in whatever culture you come from. As we enter into retreat, each one alone and together as a group, we're creating or co-creating, we could say, a temporary village, a temporary spiritual practice community. And we come together, as uh, one of my Burmese teachers says, we come together as a Dhamma family. As we begin this time, this period of commitment to exploring and cultivating and deepening our understanding, our insight into the nature of things through our practice. It seems that for many people there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or maybe more accurately, expended cultivating an outer life. Doing things and producing things, acquiring things, going places, being somebody or becoming something. This next period of time, two weeks or a month, will be quite special and actually quite unique in that none of this is really important. None of this will be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. 
So whether you've practiced in retreat uh, numerous times before, or if this particular approach to a longer a period of practice is relatively new for you, you may know the experience that often arises for people at the onset of a retreat. The sense of entering into sacred space and time, of entering into a kind of sanctuary, both within our surroundings and within ourselves. And for me, whether I'm entering into a period of intensive practice or uh, personal practice or a, a period of intensive teaching practice, there's always this, this feeling in my heart of entering into sacred space and sacred time, both within my own mind and in, in my own heart and within the space around me. And as I was sitting in my room just a little while ago, putting together this talk, I had a big wave of that feeling come up inside. Up here in this mountainous area, during this early spring season, with all of the ongoing changes occurring in the sacredness of all of the life surrounding us here, the incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us, the weather and all of its changes today, dramatic changes, 11 degrees this morning, went up to 54 this afternoon. The ongoing changes in the light, the myriad forms of life, the community of beings that we share this place with, outside and even inside. The trees and all of the other manifestations of plant life. And of course, the air itself. All of this, all of it, constantly changing, beginning and ending, birthing and dying. This natural world that's so close around us, so easily available, so easy to connect with. It's really a great gift that we're not separate from, a gift that holds us in itself. This natural world is really a great teacher of the perfectly natural fluidity and diversity and change that just simply is. It's a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. And if we really consider that Basically, nature is no problem to itself, no problem in itself to itself. We can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just isness, the just beingness, the absolute and open hearted presence 
of this perfectly natural world. Consequently, I think it's really no surprise that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished nature and beauty are very easily accessible. I know that I, and I think many of us, experience a kind of unfettered, open-hearted connection in moments of a simple, clear presence when we really take the time to truly arrive and be, to really just simply be. So for instance, maybe today, with the late afternoon light, tomorrow morning or any morning, the early sunrise or the changing colors of the sky at the close of a day, or just simply sitting and walking outside and really truly sensing the particulars of how early spring displays itself in small and larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of a silent, direct, clear and simple presence in our body, mind and heart, any time of the day, any time of the night. One day in the 92nd year of her life, my mother uh, stopped for a few moments during our daily out-of-doors walk and stooped over, looking silently and actually quite intensely or intently uh, at a flower that was very, very full in its blooming, really full in its liveliness. And after a couple of moments, she simply said both, I think, to herself and to me, it's great to be alive. A teaching from her I never forgot. And probably to each one of us, has come some unexpected, unsuspected, and maybe even exceptional moments during times of a very simple, clear, unfettered attention. Moments of what we could call spiritual attention. And the natural world is often the place where this happens most easily for us, at least at first. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the true nature of things. Our mind and heart open with the clear, and more precise receptivity, a sensing and seeing in relationship to how things really, truly are. This, we could say, is our practice. 
Also, in a place like this, people come here and have been coming here for years to reflect and to do inner work, to explore, to investigate the nature of things. There's really quite a bit of accumulated wholesome energy at a place like this. A really wonderful symbiotic and expanding energy that we're both partaking of and that we're also adding to. So how incredibly fortunate that we're here. And of course during these days we have the great gift of being taken care of in a very beautiful and simple way. All of our basic needs being taken care of. While you're here, life is pared down, simplified from your usual daily life activities and demands and seeming needs. There's really not very much to do over these next days. Sitting, walking, eating, hearing, meeting with me every couple of days, which will begin uh, the day after tomorrow on Sunday. Spending a little time each day with your yogi job, sleeping, and most importantly, cultivating a clear focus of attention and bringing this attention to your particular experiences of body, mind, and heart. So compared to the ordinary ways of the world, there's really not very much to do these next weeks, over these next weeks, which is a very good thing to remember. Because some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you may go on creating all sorts of things to do just simply out of habit. So you may need to remind yourself every now and then that there's really not much to do. So in this light, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is renunciation. And in this case, meaning letting go of busyness. Letting go and letting go of all the usual distractions that you use, the usual distractions that you engage in to try to relax out of all of the busyness. And this is a great gift, this renunciation. As each of you well know, It's not usual to take time to engage our energy this way. To really simplify our life and to spend time looking inward, to come to a place to really just simply be. Not to become anything or anybody. And not to fill up the mind with more stuff but really to just simply be connecting and looking inward 
looking directly at your particular experience, just as it is in the moment. And so we begin together in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders deep respect and acceptance. It's really a valuable gift that each of you have given to yourself for this next month or for two weeks and that you also give to each other simply by being here together as a Dhamma family. For just about everyone, there are many different kinds of feelings feeling states that come up at the onset of a retreat. So I'll name just a few of them. Maybe some excitement. Maybe some nervousness. A little worry, maybe. Maybe delight. Maybe a sense of great relief or a little bit of relief. Lots of energy moving through one's body and mind and heart even for people that have sat many, many retreats. For me, in teaching or in beginning a a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my body and my heart and my mind. It's just our human nature. Entering into something new. A little added energy moving through the body and the heart with many, many different tones to it, we could say. And how very fortunate we are that we're embodied as we are in a human form. This precious human existence making it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced heart and mind with the possibility of liberation, that clear insight, clear understanding into the nature of things brings. We're actually a minority, a small minority, on this earth, in this universe, and who knows beyond. So if you think about it, for instance, insects are much more prevalent than humans on this planet. I have a friend here in Taos who owns, who runs a a plant nursery, and she uh, told me once that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. 200 million for one of us. So, really, how fortunate to be embodied in the way that we are. The human heart and mind and body are really the most conducive towards developing kindness and 
compassion and joy and equanimity and the great gift of understanding, the great gift of wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. Really, there's just enough of each. Certainly sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other, and at times maybe great huge handfuls of one and seemingly not much, if any, of the other. But the truth is it changes. Changes back and forth within a week, daily, And if we're really paying attention, within moments. So really this human realm offers the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily live in what could be called the lower realms, where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that are needed for practice. And I'm sure that each one of us in this room have been in those lower realms at times. We know those places of tremendous fire and contraction. That place where maybe it feels impossible to be present with your experience, where it might seem impossible to connect with goodness and acceptance and kind-heartedness and joy and compassion or any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. And there are the higher realms, what are sometimes called the higher planes of existence where sometimes everything seems so blissful that there can be, sometimes in those times, very little inspiration to practice. And I'm sure that every one of us in this room have also tasted this at times, at least moments of it, maybe longer, where it all seems just absolutely perfect for a moment or two, or maybe longer. And if we have a practice, it might fly out the window during those moments. We forget, we often forget, that life really isn't always so blissful. We don't always get what we want. Life doesn't always go our way. In the blissful moments, it's actually easy to forget that we still have our spiritual work to do. So this realm that we live in most of the time, this place where we experience both pleasant and unpleasant, this is the place of our practice. This is the place where Understanding the true nature of things unfolds and blossoms. This place 
of our precious human existence. It's said that if all the world were water and a wooden ring one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds, it's said that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're really a rare species within the enormous breadth of life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions and opportunities and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of the truth, the to practice the way of the heart, that these, be- these beings are as rare as daytime stars. Now, daytime stars are up there, but we don't see them. <laughs> so here we are, a room full of daytime stars, with a wonderful two weeks or month ahead of us time of cultivation and discovery, a time of exploration, purification, and understanding, which some of the time might not be so easy and may even be quite challenging at times. But really, all the while, it also includes the incredible potential of bringing forth understanding and illumination, bringing forth calm, joy, and equanimity. As we enter into this period of sustained meditation practice, there are a few specific supports that are very readily available for you. So now I'd like to somewhat briefly take a look at these with you. The first support is the, what I consider, very special gift of silence. This silence that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is really quite amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, accepting. This container of silence that everything comes out of and everything returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds. All kinds of sounds that arise and pass. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. We all know that. We all know this interpretation. And it's important to note uh, that this is an interpretation and to notice it. Watch it. Is this or that sound noise? 
And what happens internally if it's noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart open to really simply hear, receiving the sound? Or is there some degree of a contraction, some form of aversion, a feeling of resistance, a sense of being disturbed? If it's just a sound, our relationship to it is really simply and directly connecting, hearing, and knowing. Knowing the quality of the sound, which may be perceived as pleasant or maybe unpleasant, along with the arising and passing nature of the sound itself. And most likely, you won't have this kind of a relationship to sound all of the time. So with an open heart, really just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound. And noticing it without judgment. In the silence, in the midst of silence. I can honestly say, and I think as maybe all of you, or at least many of you know for yourself, that most people by the end of a retreat, and often uh, sometimes along the way of a retreat, feel that silence is really one of the most precious aspects of retreat time. Why? Because it holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, the the key here is that you don't have to be anybody. You really don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to be a somebody as Ramdas once said, or become a somebody. You just simply be. And it's a great relief, actually, to just simply be. Some people have said that sometimes within silence, it feels as though all of the windows of the world, the windows of life itself, have been thrown wide open. When this is our experience, we may have a sense of freshness, as though an open-hearted receptivity and fresh clarity have been let in. Silence is where we learn to listen, to really listen, where we learn to sense and see and understand the true nature of things. So this is our first support, silence. So much more, really, than just not talking. The naturalist and uh, environmentalist John Muir said this about silence. 
silence and solitude. He said, one seeks solitude to know relatedness. Then the unknown, the unarticulated, the unpredictable, the uncontrollable appear as protectors of truth, protectors of the present. So just a a couple of uh, practical um, pointers regarding silence. And some of these may have been mentioned by Chris in her uh, manager's talk. I don't know. No, she says. Okay. (laughs) So uh, one is not purposely uh, making eye contact with other people in retreat. Uh, unless it's really appropriate for whatever reason, for specific some specific circumstance. Why? Well, it's because of respecting and honoring both your own and other people's inner work. As we all know, eye contact can be a very powerful non-verbal form of communication, and it can draw both your mind and heart out as well as draw someone else's out of their inner work. So just being aware of that, not being rigid about it at all, but being aware of it. Another pointer is keeping any um, daily writing to a minimum or maybe not doing any. It's fine, of course, to make a few practice notes. In fact, it can be very helpful at times to make a few practice notes. That's quite okay. But really not making any long journal entries. It's not helpful in a retreat of this nature. And lastly, um, this isn't a study retreat. Your study It is a study retreat in a certain way. You're studying your own, your own mind, but... Uh, Not reading books, not reading magazines, not reading something to entertain and distract. So another aspect of keeping and protecting this container of silence. So not filling up the mind with more stuff. There's already plenty in it more than you might know. So that's the first support, silence. The second support that I'd like to uh, look at a little bit with you is uh, taking refuge. And um, it's a really important one. Whenever I spend time in retreat myself, uh, be it just for a few days or uh, for an extended period of time, although I very deeply know in my bones the great benefits of intensive practice periods, I'm reminded again and again and again what an amazing and great gift that we've been given from the Buddha. And 
What an incredible and great gift we give to ourselves when we really take the time and put out the energy and effort to directly engage in this journey of awakening. So, taking refuge. People take refuge in all kinds of things. In all the various things, the stuff on the material, on the physical plane. And people take refuge, of course, in various ideas and various beliefs and conjectures on the mental plane. We could call this virtual refuge, which creates virtual happiness in this constantly changing and ephemeral world. So taking refuge in the context of supporting our practice, what what does it mean in this, this context? One of the ways that we might recognize and experience refuge is as a place. A place of shelter, a place of protection and safety, a sacred space and place. I found a dictionary definition of the word refuge that said it's a port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather. Well, that really struck me as absolutely applicable uh, to life and to practice. (laughs) It's quite appropriate as a metaphor for life at times, as we all know, and certainly for also some of the periods of our practice. A port of shelter to vessels in stormy weather. A place of refuge. Refuge is often um, experienced as a place of strength and clarity, both inwardly and also outwardly. And outwardly, the strength and the clarity of, of those around us, our teachers, and our spiritual friends who are on the path with us. In the context of the Dhamma, We take refuge in what are often spoken about as the three jewels or the three treasures. The the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The Buddha's teaching can be thought of as a kind of building with its own distinct foundation, and stories or levels, stairs, and a roof. And like any other building, the teaching also has a door. And in order to enter it, we have to enter through this door. So the door of the entrance to the Buddha's teaching, or the teachings of the Buddha, is going for refuge to the three jewels. That's really the entryway, the door. The 
the three jewels, the Buddha as the enlightened teacher, the Dhamma as the truth that was taught by him, and to the Sangha as the community of disciples, of noble disciples, which includes all of us. Really from ancient times, from the time of the Buddha, right up to now. The going for refuge has functions as the entryway to the teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, giving us admission, we could say, to the rest of the teachings from its very bottom, lowermost story, we could say, all the way up to the top. And every person, every being who has embraced the Buddha's uh, teaching has done so by passing through this door of taking refuge. And those people who are already committed regularly reaffirm their conviction and their commitment by making the same threefold profession and entering the door again and again and again. And it may seem like a kind of slight and commonplace step, maybe in comparison with the very lofty teachings and practices and achievements that lie beyond this first doorway of taking refuge. But it's really important that it not be underestimated. It's really, really important as it's really this act which imparts, we could say, the direction and the forward momentum to the entire practice of the Buddhist path. In understanding the need for uh, refuge, we really need to learn to see our position in life as it really is, our position as human beings in life as, they, as it really is, and to see it accurately and uh, in relationship to, to the whole uh, total background of it. From the Buddhist perspective, the human situation is similar been called similar to an iceberg. Just a small fraction of its mass appears above the surface. The vast substratum actually remains below, hidden out of view for most of us. Owing to the limits of our our mental vision, our insight really fails to penetrate beneath the surface, for the most part, the crust of the surface, to really see our situation in its underlying depth. Concealed from ourselves in very subtle ways, our desires, 
condition our perceptions and that twist them into fitting into the mold that they themselves want to impose. Consequently, our minds work by way of selection and exclusion. We usually take note of those things that are agreeable to our preconceptions. And we blot out or we distort or avoid those that threaten to throw them into some kind of disarray. And I'd like to share uh, some words with you regarding this from Bhikkhu Bodhi, the venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. These are his words. From the standpoint of a, a deeper, more comprehensive understanding, the sense of security we ordinarily enjoy comes to view as a false security sustained by unawareness and the mind's capacity for subterfuge. The real way to safety, however, lies through correct insight, not through wishful thinking. To reach beyond fear and danger, we must sharpen and widen our vision. We have to pierce through the deceptions that lull us into a comfortable complacency. To take a straight look down into the depths of our existence without turning away uneasily or running after distractions. And this, of course, calls for courage and determination from each of us. And so we take refuge in the three jewels. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. As a way to um, bring light to uh, taking refuge, I'd like to um, take a look at just a few of some of the very beautiful uh, uh, similes or metaphors that are given in the ancient texts, in the classical texts, in relationship to taking refuge. The first of these compares uh, the Buddha to the sun. For his appearance in the world is like the sun rising over the horizon. His teaching of the Dhamma is like the net of the sun's rays spreading out over the earth, dispelling the darkness and cold of the night, giving warmth and light to all beings. And the Sangha is like the beings for whom the darkness darkness of night has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and the radiance of the sun. And the second metaphor, or simile, compares the Buddha to the full moon. All of these are nature-oriented, which is one of the reasons why I like them so much. The second one compares the Buddha to the full moon, the jewel of the nighttime sky. His teaching of the Dhamma is like the moon shedding its beams of light over the world, cooling off the heat of the day. The Sangha is like the persons who go out in the night to see and enjoy the refreshing splendor of the moonlight. You can do that any night while you're here. (laughs) Look up at the Buddha, the moon. (laughs) And the third one, the third simile, the Buddha is likened to a great rain cloud 
spreading out across the countryside at a time when the land has been parched with a long summer's heat. The teaching of the true Dhamma is like the downpour of the rain which inundates the land giving water to the plants and vegetation. The Sangha is like the plants, the trees, shrubs, bushes and grass which thrive and flourish when nourished by the rain pouring down from the cloud. And then the last uh, metaphor simile compares the Buddha to a lotus flower. This is a very uh, classical one. Compares the Buddha to a lotus flower, the paragon of beauty and purity. Just as a lotus grows up in a muddy lake but rises above the water and stands in full splendor, unspoiled by the mud, so the Buddha, having grown up in the world, overcomes the world and abides in its midst, in its midst, untainted by its impurities. The Buddha's teaching of the true Dhamma is like the sweet, perfumed fragrance emitted by the lotus flower, giving delight to all. And the Sangha is like the host of bees who collect around the lotus, gather up the pollen, and fly off to their hives to transform it into honey. So that's refuge. What a great way to think about it, I think. (laughs) Very inspiring to me, and hopefully to you as well. So the last uh, support that we have is the support of the practice of sila. Sila being a Pali word meaning living ethically in relationship to all forms of life. Living with a very deep moral sensitivity towards and with all forms of life very much including oneself. And the Buddha offered these particular teachings and practices in the form of precepts or guidelines. And the word guidelines, I think, is an important word in this context. Guidelines meaning that they're not rigid uh, rules that are laid upon us, we could say, from the outside, but rather really the basis, really the ground of our life as practice. And the underlying principle of the precepts or the guidelines is non-harming. The intention of the the intention and the practice, the intention of the practice and the intention and the practice of sila is to connect to all forms of life with a very deep respect and a caring heart. Honoring life in all of its forms and then to act from this place. There's a teaching, very... uh, strong teaching that comes from the Buddha in relationship to this. This is from the Dhammapada. All beings tremble before violence. All fear death. All love life. 
See yourself in others. Then whom can you harm? What harm can you do? One who seeks happiness by hurting those who seek happiness will never find happiness. For your sister, your brother, is like you. She and he want to be at ease. Never harm him, never harm her. And then in this life and when you leave this life, you too will find happiness. As our practice deepens and as it matures, we really more and more deeply come to understand what brings happiness and contentment and ease on the very deepest levels and what brings suffering and what brings confusion, what brings dis-ease. As this retreat unfolds, any one of these guidelines might light up as a point of practice for any of you at any moment. Maybe during a moment of touching something, seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, thinking, while sitting, while walking, while eating, while standing, during your yogi job. Helping to bring your attention right into the present moment's experience with a relaxed, open-hearted, focused attention, which then quite naturally offers the opportunity for the clarity of concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom to arise. The practice of sila, learning from this practice of the precepts, the guidelines, brings more and more inner balance and harmony as we live more and more deeply with these guidelines as really the very basis of our life. And this then allows us to enter more deeply into the various, or go more deeply into the various Dharma doors that the teachings and practice offer. In this retreat, we'll practice with five or eight precepts. And these are for the lay practitioners uh, or for the ordained. You have a choice, actually, uh, to practice with the support of the five precepts or to explore the practice with the guidelines of the eight precepts. And if eight precepts are new for you, um, or if, if you might be familiar with them and have practiced with them previously, you're actually very welcome to try them out if you like, maybe for some days. And of course, you're very welcome to practice with the eight precepts for your whole time in retreat. If you do decide to practice with the eight precepts, uh, 
please uh, put your name on a list, which Chris will put up on the bulletin board. Uh, it'll be posted on the bulletin board in the hallway next to the dining room. Um, so that the cook, Syria, knows uh, that you won't be eating the tea time meal. It's very important. And uh, so that, in fact, she prepares uh, enough juice at tea time for those who are practicing with the eight precepts. And if you decide to go off the eight precepts, please cross your name off the list and put a date next to it uh, so that the cook knows that you are then going to be eating some food. So there's enough food for everybody. So all of these really wonderful supports that are here for us during this month or two weeks for some of you. The simplicity of daily life here in retreat. The ambiance and the availability of the natural world surrounding us here. The silence. Taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the five or eight precepts or guidelines for living our life here in retreat together. So I'd like to uh, just sit now for just a couple of moments, about five minutes, and then we'll take the uh, refuse and precepts together. If you need a copy, does everyone have a copy? Okay. I actually, Chris, I need a copy of the eight. I don't, I don't think I, I didn't get one.
Some words from the writer Anais Nin. And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And we'll now chant the refuges and precepts together to enter the doorway of the Dhamma. Is there anybody that wants to take eight precepts? Okay. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranangachami Dhammam Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranangachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranangachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Mereya Majapamadatana 
Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami Idam me silam magapalanyanasa pachayo hotu. So we officially are entering into retreat, all of us silence and practice. I hope you sleep well. Some of you traveled a long ways to get here. And uh, hope you have a good rest. We will be uh, starting early in the morning. Um, see my schedule here. Our first sit begins at uh, 5.45 in the morning. So do your best (laughs) to get here. If you can't make it tomorrow morning, I understand. As time goes on, you may find yourself quite able to join us for the early sit. It's a beautiful time of the day to sit, so... Hope you will. And um, I think that's it. Chris has an announcement she needs to make. I forgot several points in my orientation and I wrote them up on the board. So sometime in the next day or two, please take a look. And especially with uh, Jacob and Tree ringing the early bell, the last item is about how icy it is on the end of the box. So please take a look. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.